Hey there, it's Satya Doyle-Bayak, co-host of the Red Book Podcast. I'm popping in here a couple years later after we finished the podcast to say that I have a book coming out and I would love for you to read it. I think if you like this podcast, you might be into it. It's a Jungian-informed book for people in what Jung called the first half of life, what I call quarter life. The book itself is called Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. It is coming out July 26th, 2022 through Random House. It's available wherever you buy books. Pre-orders are open now, and I hope you like it. Um, And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Today, it's such a deep dive uh, into so many components of the feminine. And then we want to see how many people may have watched Tootsie this week. We were both watching Tootsie last evening. So we hope that maybe some of you enjoyed that too. All right, Carol, you want to kick us off? All right. So this is what I think of as the setup when the castle in the forest portion opens. There's a castle in a forest. So we have echoes of the Grail story here. And we also have echoes of Dante and Inferno. In the middle of my life, I lost my way. We have a library, we have an old scholar, and we have a plan to sleep. That was the thing that really stood out to me, that in this setup, his plan is to go to sleep. But another thought doesn't let go of me, namely that the old man has hidden his beautiful daughter. He's appalled that he can't go to sleep and that this is what is keeping him awake, this banal dime store novel, frail, pale maiden is what's keeping him awake. And then he says, better to swallow, he decides he's going to do this. Better to swallow this stale drink than keep it in the mouth. And I was observing to Sati this morning in my own years of, of wonderful, wonderful union work, I had made some kind of pronouncement to her, and she said, Carol, if this is yours, put it in your mouth, bite it, and if it's not yours, spit it out. Taste it and bite it and spit it out if it's not yours. But if it is yours, you have to chew it, you have to swallow it, you have to digest it, you have to metabolize it, you have to make yours what is yours, and you have to shit the rest of it out. And when I, so when I read this, better to swallow this stale drink than keep it in the mouth. I said, so Satya, is this, you know, sort of prescriptive in the therapeutic process? Because it has been so valuable to me over the years to take that on. Like, is this mine? 
you know, is this mine to do? Let me just yeah. that briefly, because it evokes again what Anne was speaking to about the, the chewing like a cow and taking something deep within you, right? But it's, it's so much that alchemical idea versus just sort of, again, more of maybe a Buddhistic idea of, of um, I mean, obviously there's so much depth with Eastern religion, so I don't want to be reductive here, but that it's about alchemizing or transforming something versus yeah. just trying to let it go in some way or trying to be good in more the Christian ideal, right? So I love that. Thank you. So um, Satya and I are going to take turns reading, starting with 221, now that you know the setup is that he is not going to go to sleep. He is going to do this. Well, just, yeah, right. so he's approached this castle. He's wandering, right? He's tired from meeting the red one and all this. He's wandering. He's approaching this castle in the middle of the night. He's, oh, thank God there's this castle. Thank God there's this place for me to sleep. He walks in, a servant opens the door for him. He sees this old scholar sitting there, just so, you know, kind of annoyed with him that he would bother, he would disdain to bother this scholar sitting with his books. He waits and waits, waits again. Finally, the scholar gruffly brings the servant back down and Jung is taken up to a room to sleep. And that's where we begin here. Okay, so we're on page 221, middle of the page. As I am tired, I undress immediately and go to bed after I have snuffed out the candle. The sheet is uncommonly rough and the pillow hard. My errant way has led me to a strange place, a small old castle whose scholarly owner is apparently spending the evening of his life alone with his books. No one else seems to be living in the house apart from the servant who lives over there in the tower, an ideal though solitary existence. I think this life of the old man with his books. And here, my thoughts linger for a long time until I finally notice that another thought doesn't let go of me, namely, that the old man has hidden his beautiful daughter here, a vulgar idea for a novel, an insipid, worn-out theme. But the romantic can be felt in every limb, a real novelistic idea, a castle and a forest, a solitary night, an old man petrified in his books, protecting a costly treasure and enviously hiding it from all the world. What ridiculous thoughts come to me. Is it hell or purgatory that I must also contrive such childish dreams on my wanderings? But I feel impotent to elevate my thoughts to something a bit stronger or more beautiful. I suppose I must allow these thoughts to come. What good would it do to push them away? They will come again. Better to swallow this stale drink than keep it in the mouth. So what does this boring heroine look like? Surely blonde, pale, blue eyes, hoping longingly that every lost wanderer is her savior from the paternal prison. Oh, I know this hackneyed nonsense. I'd rather sleep. Why the devil must I plague myself with such empty fantasies? Sleep does not come. I toss and turn. Sleep still does not come. Must I finally harbor this unsaved soul in myself? And is it this that will not let me sleep? Have I such a novelistic soul? That's all I needed. This would be agonizingly ridiculous. Does this bitterest of all drinks never end? It must already be midnight and still sleep does not come. What in the wide world then won't let me sleep? Is it something to do with this chamber? Is the bed bewitched? It's terrible what sleeplessness can drive a man to. Even the most absurd and superstitious theories 
It seems to be cool. I'm freezing. Perhaps that's what's keeping me from sleeping. It's really uncanny here. Heaven knows what goes on here. Weren't those steps just now? No, that must have been outside. I roll over, firmly closing my eyes. I simply must sleep. Wasn't that the door just now? My God, someone is standing there. Am I, am I seeing straight? A slim girl, pale as death, standing at the door. For heaven's sakes, what is this? She's coming nearer. Have you come at last? She asks quietly. Impossible. This is a cruel mistake. The novel wants to become real. Does it want to grow into some silly ghost story? To what nonsense am I damned? Is it my soul that harbors such novelistic brilliance? Must this too happen to me? I am truly in hell. The worst awakening after death to be resurrected in a lending library. Have I held the men of my time and their taste in such contempt that I must live in hell and write out the novels that I've already spat on long ago? Does the lower half of average human taste also claim holiness and invulnerability so that we might not say any bad word about it without having to atone for the sin in hell? She says, oh, so you too think me common. Do you too let yourself be deluded by the wretched delusion that I belong in a novel? You as well, whom I had hoped had thrown off appearances and striven after the essence of things? Jung says, forgive me, but are you real? It's the sorriest likeness to those foolishly threadbare scenes in novels for me to assume that you are not simply some unfortunate product of my sleepless brain. Is my doubt then truly confirmed by a situation that conforms so thoroughly with a sentimental romance? She says, you wretch. How can you doubt that I am real? She falls to her knees at the foot of my bed, sobbing and holding her face in her hands. My God, in the end, is she really real? And do I do her an injustice? My pity awakens. I say, but for heaven's sakes, tell me one thing. In all earnestness, must I assume that you are real? She weeps and does not answer. Who are you then? She says, I am the old man's daughter. He holds me here in unbearable captivity, not out of envy or hate, but out of love, since I am his only child in the image of my mother who died young. I scratch my head. Is this not some hellish banality? Word for word, pulp fiction from the lending library? Oh, you gods, where have you led me? It's enough to make one laugh. It's enough to make one weep. To be a beautiful sufferer, a tragic shattered person is difficult, but to become an ape, you beautiful and great ones, to you the banal and eternally ridiculous, the unutterably hackneyed and emptied out is never set like a gift of heaven in uplifted praying hands. But still she lies there crying. Yet what if she were real? Then she would be worth feeling sorry for. Every man would have compassion for her. If she is a decent girl, what must it have cost her to enter into the room of a strange man and to overcome her shame in this way?
before Sachi reads, I, I will say, I was reading this when Brett Kavanaugh was being nominated to the Supreme Court and Dr. Ford was giving her testimony. And all I could think is, everywhere, what if she were real? Not just personally. So this struggle that Jung is in hit me in such a profound way, not only personally, but in the collective. What if she were real? Yes. I'll continue and we'll pick up there on, on how culture objectifies and dismisses the feminine. So Jung says, my dear child, I believe you, despite everything that you are real. What can I do for you? Finally, finally, a word from a human mouth, she says. She gets up, her face beaming. She is beautiful. A deep purity rests in her look. She has a beautiful and unworldly soul, one that wants to come into the life of reality, to all reality worthy of pity, to the bath of filth and the well of health. Oh, this beauty of the soul, to see it climb down into the underworld of reality, what a spectacle. She speaks, what can you do for me? You have already done much for me. You spoke the redeeming word when you no longer place the banal between you and me. Know then, I was bewitched by the banal. Jung says, woe is me, you now become very fairy tale like She says, be reasonable, dear friend, and do not stumble now over the fabulous, since the fairy tale is the great mother of the novel and has even more universal validity than the most avidly read novel of your time. And you know that what has been on everyone's lips for millennia, though repeated endlessly, still comes nearest the ultimate human truth. So do not let the fabulous come between us. Jung says, you are clever and do not seem to have inherited the wisdom of your father, but tell me, what do you think of the divinity of the so-called ultimate truths? I found it very strange to seek them in, the, in banality. According to their nature, they must be quite uncommon. Think only of our great philosophers. She says, the more uncommon these highest truths are, the more inhuman must they be, and the less they speak to you as something valuable or meaningful concerning human essence and being. Only what is human and what you call banal and hackneyed contains the wisdom that you seek. I'm just going to read that line again because I think it's so critical. Only what is human and what you call banal and hackneyed contains the wisdom that you seek. The fabulous does not speak against me, but for me and proves how universally human I am and how much I too not only need redemption, but also deserve it. For I can live in the world of reality as well or better than many others of my sex. Strange maiden, you are bewildering. When I saw your father, I hoped he would invite me into a scholarly conversation. He did not, and I was aggrieved at him because of this, since his distracted slackness hurt my dignity. But with you, I find it much better. You give me matters to ponder. You are uncommon. She says, you are mistaken. I am very common. He says, I can't believe that. How beautiful and worthy of adoration is the expression of your soul in your eyes. Happy and enviable is the man who will free you. She says, do you love me? 
by God, I love you, but unfortunately I am already married, she says. So you see, even banal reality is a redeemer. I thank you, dear friend, and I bring you greetings from Salome. With these words, her shape dissolves into darkness. Dim moonlight penetrates the room. Where she stood, something shadowy lies. It is a profusion of red roses. Well, we're just going to chew on this for a little while. <laughs> Carol, where do you want to begin? There's so much. Well, I think that one of the places that I would like to begin is, is to take a brief look at Jung's chart at this moment and to talk about the masculine and the feminine, not from a, 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 an abstracted or dry or reductive astrological point of view, but to see how time brought him to a, a very particular kind of moment. If, if astrology, like any descriptive language, is us trying to name nature, then the gods and goddess Venus and Mars are very old names. They have older roots than our Western names for them. They're very old names for not just, the, not just the feminine and the masculine, but for how things move in the world. So Venus moves in beauty and pleasure and relationship, not, not just human beings to each other, but things being in relationship. And Mars functions to arrive, survive, and take up space. I had a, a wonderful Hebrew client who taught me the new word Musar, M-U-S-S-A-R, which means essentially right, right space or right strength. That whether you're a Douglas fir tree or a baby calf or a human being, you, ha you have to survive your arrival and you have to stand up and you have to master yourself. And your mastery and the space that you take up may then abut or move into a relationship with someone else's space. You can get conflict and aggression from Mars, but I have some disagreement with some astrological interpretations about this, that not only can you not reduce it to gender, but that you can't just think of the old stories about conflict and, and dominance, that all of us have to come to terms with how we take up space in the world. In the Middle Ages, the astrologer said, um, Mars separates, Venus unites. So in any horoscope, there is mastery and beauty. There is strength and there is connectedness. So in Jung's chart, what we're looking at here is in the inner wheel, his natal chart, he has Mars at the 21st degree of Sagittarius, never mind house system, his mastery has to do with philosophy and imagination and a restless search for truth. And his Venus very closely conjoined his Mercury in Cancer is a beautiful, sensitive, thoughtful, feminine presence who it needs a certain kind of protection. It's really interesting to think about a pale maiden in a patriarchal castle. If you think about a castle surrounded by a moat and someone who, who's longing for it and the interior and that something is gestating and growing in the interior. On the night of this particular vision, the planets Mercury and Venus joined in his natal chart, joined in this evening, are touching his Mars. 
on this evening, the planet Mars is touching his Venus and Mercury. I was sort of startled. I mean, I'm continuously startled when I see the nature of the time and how Jung is opening himself up and creating a portal for the field to enter and touch and illuminate his own inner becoming. And um, there's plenty of other stuff to talk about this, but I'll just stop there. I, I was very, very, as I think about coming to terms, not just men coming to terms with their Venus, but women coming to terms with their martiality, that here we have in this particular event and that, that he's literally internalizing the nature of the time too, in a very, very particular way for him. Mm -hmm. I'll just start there. Oh, it's so much, Carol. Thank you. Um, I think what you just spoke to, I mean, you know, we're opening up this whole conversation again, but for me, this, this story kind of serves as the ballast point, the kind of the, the, the center of gravity for this whole book. Because for a man at the height of patriarchy, with everything he could possibly want in Europe, a, you know, wealth, accolades, his wife, his children, an extraordinary home, he knows something is missing. And he has the courage and, and enough humbleness, too, to go in search of that. And again, as we've spoken of, he, he didn't do that alone. And we want to talk specifically about the women in his life more next week, because it's a critical part of this story. He starts to set up what happens if we are all born into a patriarchal culture as almost all humans have been for thousands of years now, but we're also all born from a womb and vagina, from a female body, how that non-binary split kind of shapes all of us, regardless of what gender, gendered body we're born into, right? So Jung's doing this extraordinary thing by saying, okay, I'm witnessing, and, and this is, he's really influenced, I think, a lot by Goethe's Faust too, this idea of what happens when a man has everything and is empty and soulless and feels empty. And he's seeing this with the scholars in his world. And he does this extraordinary thing, calling out scholarship and the emptiness of it, the extraordinary emptiness of it. And what I, part of what, I mean, there's so much, so many lines we're going to read yet, but part of what I love about the setup is he is more horrified by a dime store novel than he is about meeting his own devil, which just happened this chapter before, right? He met this man who he identified as his devil, and he's more terrified of a young, wafy girl knocking on his door, scared and timid and uncomfortable, because he can't tolerate the idea that this is part of his own unconscious. It horrifies him. I think that's hilarious. I mean, it's just as stunning and, and not unusual, right? So, okay, so there's so much. So why, Carol, why did, why did I encourage all of us to watch Tootsie? What happened for you as you watched it? Well, first of all, I forgot how good a movie it was. I forgot what, how incredibly beautifully it was written. And I was amazed at, at watching Dustin Hoffman just effortlessly shift, shift gears from being the asshole male actor to, to Tootsie. And, and about how his, the invocation and his, the, the unification, the two parts coming together as he says in the end, made him a better man. It made that, that, you know, the line at the end with Jessica Lange, where he says, I was a better man with you, to you as a woman than I have been as a man to any woman. And um, that, that was part of it. But I also thought, wow, they made this in the 80s. 
and especially his the wonderful speech that she makes when Dabney Coleman calls her Tootsie mm -hmm. and she says, I am a woman, I am a human being. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the conversation you and I have been having is I am a human being. I am a whole human being. Right. And anyway, that, that was part of my take on I it. I mean, and it holds up, doesn't it? I thought it really held up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. right. So here, so, so we're going to read a few lines that speak to this really directly. Right. But here is a man who is as much, part of the kind of misogynistic realm and heady he's this kind of brash young man who, who thinks he doesn't take shit from everyone but is kind of undermining his life every which way he can't make money he has no real relationship he's hitting on every woman around him and double booking himself every night and canceling plans. you know he's doing all these things then he does he he finally lands a job by by showing up to the audition as a female and starts to experience what it is like to be treated in society with this constant dismissal and by experiencing it in his own skin he suddenly has all of this recognition of how dehumanizing he is how dehumanized he feels and begins to really understand what's happening in a different way so i'm just going to read speaking to that point directly one line from jung this is 228 he says to men it is good for you once to put on women's clothes people will laugh at you but through becoming a woman, you attain freedom from women and their tyranny, which then becomes a weird line, but we're gonna kind of break all this down. He says, the acceptance of femininity leads to completion. The same is valid for the woman who accepts her masculinity. Now think back to the red one here for a moment. You think back to kind of this constant interweaving of the devil and the feminine throughout the whole red book. He says, the feminine in men is bound up with evil. I find it on the way of desire. The masculine and the woman is bound up with evil. Therefore, people hate to accept their own other. But if you accept it, that, that which is connected with the perfection of men comes to pass. I'm going to keep skipping around a bit because there's so much here. As a man, you have no soul since it is in the woman. As a woman, you have no soul since it is in the man. But if you become a human being, then your soul comes to you. So just to kind of break this down again, um, I think we're at a different stage of gender than Jung was at at the time. And so I want to just name this a bit that we're all again, born from female bodies and born into a patriarchal society. So there is a struggle with all of us manifesting both our masculinity or masculine and our feminine and detoxing both of those things from the way that patriarchy tells us they should be. Patriarchy has ideas about the masculine and the feminine that we have been drinking and integrating like poison since the millisecond we were born or even, even in our mother's wombs, right? It's in everything we read. It's in every commercial. It's in every film. It's in every conversation. So as we're all detoxing this, I, I think it, it, we're starting to shift this binary that Jung came to of the female has a masculine soul and the male has a feminine soul. We've explored this so much in different Salome seminars, right? And it's, I mean, it's in every gender studies class, but just, just I want to kind of put an asterisk on all that for all of us who are reading it, that we kind of detox the muse, both feminine and masculine for ourselves, so that we let the muse lead us in every creative, passionate, difficult journey through projection that we want to go down. 
but that we don't just stay in this binary that like me as a female identified person that my feminine is done and I just need to work on the masculine or vice versa. Right. And I just, I want, I'd like to riff on that just a little bit. I think a subset of this is the difference between I and we. And as I was rereading this, I was thinking about the idea of how trauma makes us think that we're alone. I had never, all of us can talk about trauma on one level or another, but when I was in a real healing crisis is when I truly had the experience that when you are traumatized, you can't let anything in. And so I, I, as I was reading this, you, you can hear this separateness, this I, I, I trying to become we. And I was thinking about, I think about the people at CIIS like Brian Swim and um, Thomas Trugel who are talking about that evolution, in terms of evolution, we are trying to, be, to find each other and become whole again. And that one of the things that keeps us from being whole and together is trauma, that we believe that we're separate. So I'm, I'm struck as we talk about the womb and about the, a place where we truly experience we, that the mother and child are one, and that the mother and child are one in a, in a much larger sense of that, of, of we, that it isn't just that birth is a traumatic experience in which you go from a sense of unity and oneness to distinction. And it isn't, but, but that if we talk about birth trauma in the sense of this is our, our first experience of being separate and that the process of coming to we, of coming to I and coming to we, it has a gender component to it of wholeness, but that it radiates out more profoundly into into the larger culture. I think about the difference between, I saw Queen Elizabeth on Victory in Europe Day, the celebration the other day, using the word we. We, we know how, we, I, I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud, she said, of how we, the people, are coming together in this very difficult time, as we did in World War II. And I think about Macron, who talks about we, how this is, this is a problem for us. And so there's something here for me about it's not just that the feminine has to do with relationship, but that this larger, a part of what we're, we're dealing with here is how do we, in this time, remember to come to we, not just the separateness that continues to make us think that we're objects, that we're stuck in our stories in a certain way, and that we're not a part of something bigger, alive, and whole to which we are profoundly connected. And I, it made me think about the Edinger quote that you and I were reading this morning. So do you want to read that a little bit? I, I will read it. I was just contemplating, should, should we do that? This, Carol and I, again, you know, we speak a little bit before these gatherings. And this, I had already opened up this morning because I was following a dream I'd had. And it just is such, I mean, again, the reason that Jung's work has touched me so much is because it's given me a sense of direction of how to be with the mess of existence, but how to move towards wholeness and, and how to move towards wholeness in the world, not in the kind of Christian idea of just being good or being martyrs with each other, taking care of everyone, right? Being conscious and transcendent. Or being, or being transcendent and trying to leave, the, you know, leave and, and working towards enlightenment in a different way. But, but to be here, and let me just quickly, I want to read one line from Jung that ends after the profusion of red roses. This is on 225. 
He says, if no outer adventure happens to you, then no inner adventure happens to you either. And so that's, for me, it's just, he's always holding the inner and the outer. Um, but in his work, The Undiscovered Self, which for folks who haven't read it, um, you know, it's one of my absolute favorite pieces of Jung's. Again, it's called The Undiscovered Self. It's been published in various versions. But he really speaks to the critical importance of being your individual self. And that if we are going to come to wholeness, the irony is you also have to be completely and totally whole within your own existence. And so let me read this. This is from Edward Edinger in The Anatomy of Psyche. He says, collective thinking is revealed by preoccupation with whether or not one is normal. And I'm going to set that up again. Collective thinking is revealed by preoccupation with whether or not one is normal. But to the extent that one is a separate, unique world of being, there can be no norms, since a norm is an average of many. The individual psyche is and must be a whole, a whole world within itself in order to stand over and against the outer world and fulfill its task of being a carrier of consciousness. For the scales to be balanced, the individual must be of equal weight to the world. So, you know, Carol, you, you, you've spoken a lot of projection. I know that word, you know, it's such a profound idea and concept and such a, a critical part of Jung's understanding of individuation, but it's so fundamental to, to the whole Red Book and to this experience of him projecting that, that banal feminine that has withered as Salome had. It's withered within his own psyche because he has elevated intelligence and scholarship so high He's elevated the masculine so high that what has been diminished, disre disregarded, dismissed is this feminine that doesn't, that all she's asking, the only thing she wants is to be considered real, you know, to be witnessed. That's the starting place, to be witnessed as real, right? And so then the retraction of projection begins and that ability to become whole within himself begins. Yes. I made a note here that it might be useful to go back to basics a little bit about the nature of projection. What is the nature, what, what do we think the unconscious is? You know, such that, our, that we both want to be individuated and conscious and distinct, and that we want to be connected and part of and available to and receiving and be noticed by something and to be witnessed by something that is bigger and uh, in some ways more chaotic and phonic than, than our separate selves allow. And so that whole idea of, of what you've just read, of how will, how will we hold this? I mean, it's a part of what astrology is about. How do we, in our own way, not in some narrow or rigid typology, you know, I'm, I'm, this, I'm, I'm a Virgo and that means this, and I just turn up the volume on that because because now I know who I am and that it doesn't admit anything else, not astrology in that sense, but in the sense of that we arrive and we begin to participate, that there is something that we can know about the nature of the time and geography of when we enter and when we begin to participate. But that we also, in that process of being who we are, have constantly available to us a much larger, infinite, eternal chaotic place of infinite possibility 
that we're also holding and that a part for me a part of what projection is is how are we going to find ourselves in relationship to that not just to get lost in it this is one of the conversations we had yesterday you know to get lost in the unconscious now i am not here now i am surrendered the neptune a neptunian swoon in a way to just let go of everything and to become completely undifferentiated which of course is is also there and and a part of what the conscious goes no i'm not going there i'm not going to let that happen i just thought it would be good to have a revisiting of what we think the unconscious might be, what we think consciousness uh -huh. might be, and where projection in terms of this particular, of Jung's particular place in this journey of where that comes in. Whoa, that's three or four or five different classes. Sure. Uh, no, it's, so there were so many things. I mean, I want to just briefly touch on, you know, I think the critical importance that astrology be, and, and certainly how you use it, Carol, um, that we're, we are growing these parts of ourselves that we don't fully identify with, like as our sun sign, right? And that that is really understanding the landscape of our individual chart and how it's interacting with the, the transits and the external world. It's both that individual chart and it's all of the relationships in time, yes. right? So it's a dynamic, shifting, transforming, maturing experience. And then, you know, Jung used astrology all the time, right? And, and I think it had such a profound influence on his typological work that, that again, the way that Myers-Briggs and a lot of modern astrology, kind of newspaper astrology or whatever, both of these things have broken it down so that it's about identifying. It's like Myers-Briggs is I'm an INFP and that's it. Versus how do we develop the undeveloped functions, which was the yeah. point of Jung's typology. It was the pulling back of what has not been helped, what's not been developed and working it. And by doing that, we withdraw projections onto those people who are holding these things for us like servants. I mean, that comes to me like one very simple exercise I, you know, I think can be helpful for just quickly naming is what more than anything would you want to hire somebody to do for you? You know, I mean, I remember when I was in my 20s, we would play this with different friends. Like if you could hire a chef, a masseuse or a house cleaner, you know, <laughs> like what of those things would you most want? You know, and like you learn pretty quickly what's least developed in terms of a sense of embodiment or relationship to home or external environment or food and cooking. You start learning what's less developed and what you want to hire people for. So then this again, I mean. I was listening this, this week, um, I don't know who else maybe listened to the, I think it was the TEDx radio hour, the TED radio hour on NPR, you know, they clip these different uh, TED talks. I, I hope I don't mispronounce her name. I think her name's Ai-Jen Poo. She's, she, she works in this extraordinary way with um, kind of organizing domestic workers, you know, and so, and really names. This is where we shift so much of cultural stuff onto primarily women of color in our environments and our worlds and underpay them consistently. And her whole talk is about projection. It's all a deeply Jungian exploration. And it's so much this story, the castle in the forest. Carol, you mentioned Kavanaugh. It's all of it. What we don't want to value as a culture, what we don't want to pay for, what we want to disrespect, we can rape, we can muzzle and lock up and destroy and we can underpay consistently because it doesn't matter to us. 
But there we find the cultural shadow and there we find the individual shadow. And this, again, we open up by understanding projection. Yeah, thank you. Gets us riled up, gets me riled up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I come back again to, um, to wholeness. Yeah. What I think of as responsible imagination you know, about what we open ourselves to and our responsibility to hold it in the way we hold it. It's the thing I most admire about Jung is that he just went straight for it. Never mind where he ended with, you know, I I was doing a horoscope comparison between Henri Corbin and um, Jung and... um, Campbell. And Joseph Campbell and also Goethe. And it's really interesting to look at the gestalts of these men who are really wrestling with soul wrestling with with you know where what is what is our enlightened relationship to uh, source and ground of being which of course includes the feminine so well and carol let's just i mean i think we'll probably move to questions soon but i you know you opened up this question of what is the unconscious right which i think is an unanswerable question but but what's critical about this is that Jung's constantly wrestling with whether the unconscious is feminine and whether the unconscious is the anima and whether the unconscious is soul and God, right? I mean, we saw that in earlier and we'll continue to see it throughout the book. He's wrestling with the divine, you know, the human and divine, the Jesus story, all of these stories that are the kind of coming to wholeness, the the androgynous wholeness. And if the ego is masculine, and the thing that kind of warriors itself out into the world and is the hero's story, then is the unconscious feminine. And is that true for all genders? And that then becomes the huge question mark. You know, is it personal? Is it individual? What marshals itself out into the world and pecks itself out of the egg? And what returns down to the aquifer of existence from whence we all came, right? Now you're talking Neptune. All right, Neptune. Okay. Q&A. Can't wait to talk to you. Um, Anne, do you want to start us off with our, a little bit of translation here? On Yeah, sure. I, I'm still going for that one same word. Uh, I don't want to criticize the translator. I, he's done an immense job. So when I go after a word, it's more that it seems it doesn't seem fitting. And the word that didn't seem fitting was joy. And I'll try to do this within two minutes if I possibly can. So, as I said last time, the word D, it's feminine, Freude means joy, pleasure, all of those. And for me, the word pleasure fits much more deeply than the word joy in what the spirit of the depths and what the pale maiden is trying to say to him, much more. So, that's what sent me on that exploration. Again, it's, it's a long one, but strikes me so powerfully in this in this section that what is happening is that she is really confronting him deep down in many ways she's tearing the fabric of western civilization apart the whole thing about the lower half i have them written down here from the lower half the banal the 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 dime store novel the whole of it it's really words in there, things that I spat on, the novel that I spat on. It's very, very powerful. And I'd like to tell a personal story, if I may. So, as you all know, I lived in Germany. I studied in Germany, and I had a room 
I rented a room in a woman who was 15 years older than I was, a doctor studying at the Jung Institute. She was friend, mentor, all of those. And what we often would do in the evening is that we would sit and have a glass of wine and listen to classical music. We'd listen to Bach and Beethoven and all the piano concertos again and again and again and again. So fast forward, I am in a relationship with a English young student of architecture and he comes from London, he comes over to Munich and he brings with him an album of the Rolling Stones, which he puts on and he plays. The horror that I see in her face is the horror that I feel in Jung. It's like you cannot have a relationship with somebody who listens to the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and it really allowed me to see that, that dimension of European civilization. I'm going to tell one other story. The biggest compliment to me would be, you're not American. That was always meant as a compliment. Oh, but you're not American, which means, oh, you're not common. Plug it right into that story there with a the pale maiden. I wasn't as bold as the pale maiden, so I took the compliment. But the fact is, and I knew it, I grew up eating cheeseburgers, going to boys' hockey games, we're talking the 50s, and maybe letting them kiss me at a drive-in theater. I was totally American. I only knew one language that was American. They all spoke four and five and so forth. And they didn't even consider American English. It wasn't refined or cultured enough. So I could feel so powerfully what happens when she says to him, no, don't exalt me. Don't turn me into an object of adoration. And don't diminish me. It's neither one, I am common. That's an incredible sentence in there. That yeah. sentence challenged the entire cultural value of European civilization. That one right there. So why do I choose the word pleasure rather than joy? Joy, of course, is much more exalted if you listen to it. It's the ode to joy which comes at the end of Beethoven's ninth. The chorus comes in with this ode to joy. It's always much more exalted. And interestingly enough, the word Freude, joy or pleasure, is at its opposite end. If you add the word maiden to it, it becomes prostitute. Mm -hmm. It has this incredible, you know, can be either very exalted or very wow. low down. Wow. Where's the word pleasure? And I came to love this word. It also exists in French, plaisir. It holds within it that commonality, that middle ground. It has very little morality in it. It holds the sexual. It holds the sensual. It holds the soulful. It is the daughter in, in Eros and Psyche. Pleasure is the daughter. She's both soulful, not diminishing the sexual in any way, or the sensual. I kept thinking of David Abrams while I was reading. Yeah. Reading, it's a, asking what to return from that exalted place back into the world of the sensuous, of the pleasure. What Marilyn was speaking about last week with with uh, Feldenkrais, that you don't learn without that element. We don't have many words that aren't 
laden with moral judgments, but that's one that we do have. So I'll just say in finishing, I mean, there's much more that I could say about that and why he chooses to translate as joy and so forth. But I had the image that as she disappears and this great vase of red roses are there, that the background music is not Beethoven's Ode to Joy <laughs> at all, but four working class Liverpool lads singing all you need is love. Yeah. Yeah. That is and Anne, you set us up perfectly then for when we get to the next chapter in a couple weeks. Um, you know, I mean, I to get to the Liverpool pub, we're right there with the next story. I think Salome stuck a couple of dandelions in with those red roses. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. I, Anne and Sati and I have been having a separate conversation and around this idea of pleasure. It reminded me of the old Mae West quote, Good girls go to heaven. Bad girls go anywhere they want. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So, I mean, just this, this reiteration of, of the body, the embodiment, the embodied quality of yearning and, and letting that be part of Jung's journey. Again, what he's reclaiming as the intellectual that he knows to be his own ego, stuck in a castle all by himself, getting lonelier and lonelier and dirtier and dustier. And then he has to come back to his own banal, you know, what he considers to be banal pleasure. So Anne, brilliant, grateful, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, y'all, everyone else too, we would love to just hear again, the reluctant folks, we love your thoughts and questions. Okay, Andrea, you're on. Um, I just wanna say that I think pleasure is actually deeper than joy. It feels richer. Uh, yeah, it feels, you know, down, well, it's physical. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as opposed to joy is up and pleasure is all the way through, I think. Such a critical distinction. Yeah. It's beautiful, really. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Kathy. Um, you know, I think in the same spirit of Tootsie, which Hun and I watched last night and just loved, is Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. <laughs> because the, you know, and then I started thinking about Some Like It Hot, you know, starting to look at a little body of movies where the writer and the actors give way to these performances. And I wondered, wouldn't it be fabulous to interview, we can't interview Robin Williams, but we could, Dustin Hoffman, and say, did this change you? Oh. Did you take from this something else into your life? And I would say probably, and I know someone that, that knows Dustin Hoffman, I thought it could be a good little thread to travel on. You know? <laughs> Go for it, Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> Interview him. Exactly. Yeah. And invite him to join us. We would love to have him. Oh my God, he probably would. Well, we'll have him. You let us know. But I'm with you. I was. Uh, I recently also remarkably watched Mrs. Doubtfire, so um, I definitely was thinking the same. And and the very similar transformation. I mean, I'm sure the in Tootsie influenced Mrs. Doubtfire somewhat, but the transformation of consciousness. You know, again, Jung literally says it. It would it would be good for you to put on women's clothes. What a radical thing to say in 1914, 15, whenever he wrote those exact words. I mean, it's just stunning. It's absolutely radical. Claudia. Well, I don't know if anybody else, there's so many of us on this, but I went to a Tootsie party right after that movie came out. <laughs> My neighbors had a Tootsie party. Did anybody else experience that? 
It was so mind-blowing, so mind-blowing. And that following Halloween, I was in love with Arnie Molina, a gay man. I was so in love with Arnie. And we were best friends. And we went to a Halloween party together, and I dressed as my high school boyfriend. And it would, that was even more powerful than the Tootsie Party for some reason. But the empowerment, oh my God, it was just incredible. The equality, and it, was, it really was a transformative experience. So maybe it's time for another Tootsie Party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Claudia, I love that. And it, I mean, it, it brings up for me what Anne said about her Rolling Stone boyfriend and all of this. I mean, for you to choose somebody so personal to you to dress up as is profound. For us to, to kind of try to literally walk in, in the shoes of, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Donna, did you, you want to speak? In the back of my mind, I remember that there's some type of ritual that the American Indians had that at a certain time, you had to dress up as the opposite sex and live that way for a certain amount of time. And then you go back to your whatever one you think you are. I just, remember, I just remember that as being something, I don't know where it was, or, but I do remember, I thought, that's really cool. In the, in the Midwest, it was called, they were called Verdachi. There was also something in the Plains Indians that was called the Hayoka. Yeah. And the Hayoka was called the backwards man. And uh, he did everything backwards. He wore women's clothes. And what was so interesting about the Hayoka is he was, considered absolute he was considered sacred he was like a representative of the spirit world and so he was held in great esteem and was included in different ceremonies thank you sean you know i want to make a comment about this because you know tootsie is from the 80s and there's actually a show called rupaul's drag race which does this very thing that Jung is talking about. And two comments on it. In one of the earlier seasons, one of the contestants was asked, you know, about, are you a woman? And he said, he's not a biological woman, but he's a psychological woman, which I think is an interesting distinction. And then just last week, like just actually a couple days ago on Friday, there was an episode of, RuPaul's secret celebrity drag race (laughs) where they take celebrities and dress them up, you know, and drag. It was the most astounding thing to see is that there was this big, burly, masculine guy in there, you know, and who was very scared of dressing in women's clothing, dressing up in drag. And the transformation that he encountered, and you can watch this episode, it was just done on Friday. You see exactly what Jung is talking about, just in something that changed in him by putting on women's clothing. And he was beautiful. He fancied himself as a 20s Hollywood starlet or star. And, you know, it was really, really amazing to watch this guy, how he embraced you know, what he was up to in that episode and took it on. And it was, it was really amazing to watch. So and it was very relevant to reread this section of the Red Book at the same time that I had just seen that episode. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. 
Thank you, Sean, so much. It reminds me too um, of just modern television. We have a couple more hands up. Um, we'll, I'll get right there. I think the reverse of this for me, the, the Amazon show that only ran for one season called I Love Dick is so profound. I mean, it completely rocked my world. And it's very, I mean, it was, it's, it's tremendously cringy for a lot of, for me, and I think for a lot of folks, it's this a woman reclaiming a kind of masculine pleasure that we associate, I think, more often with that kind of erect uh, penis, you know, this kind of direct pleasure. And she just goes for it. The whole show was written by women or trans women. I'm not totally sure, I think. Um, but but it's, it's an all-produced female show. And you get a sense of this female on the other side of it, reclaiming the other side of pleasure that I've never seen depicted anywhere else. So in any case, obviously, this is happening everywhere in culture. We're in a tr tremendous moment of gender. Okay, Steve. Hi. Um, no, that, that story reminded me, I heard this interview with uh, David Bowie, where he was talking about when they started wearing makeup, when he came with the Ziggy Stardust concept, and was kind of, you know, telling the band, it's like, it's gonna be great. We're gonna be, we're gonna be wearing makeup. We're gonna be, when they were, the band was very resistant to it. But then once they started doing it then he couldn't get them to they, they were so into it that he couldn't get them to stop basically mm -hmm. um but one of the things i think was interesting about that is bowie is somebody who almost certainly knew about that that there's this kind of like mystical tradition of it, the idea of the heoka come up but there's also the idea of the alchemical hermaphrodite there's the image of of baphomet that mixes um kind of these these feminine and masculine attributes into one deity there there's this whole idea of of kind of like the power and energy or or this becoming a symbol of this kind of like higher knowledge? That wasn't really a question. Carol, I mean, I think we're all just, it, the references are everywhere and I think we're all feeling that, right? It's just, yeah. and we, we know, you know, alchemy, every religion, Native American, all over the world, cultures have been wrestling with this question of the binary since the beginning of time, right? It's everything, the Taoist yin and yang, it's everything, right? Um, so I think it stirs a lot of us. Carol, what's coming up for you in all this? Well, I, I, I worked for almost 30 years in corporate life with a mostly male industry. And I, um, I think about how incredibly lucky I was to learn how to establish my own territory and to be, to marshal myself and to be effective in the world in a way I had not been before that life. And the expense to my own feminine nature, that the cost of it, and just the, the constant kind of reconciliation that, that this is an alive process. It's not some end state, you know. Thank you. Tyler. Um, I heard that the American Indian, the Plains Indians it was, who had the shaman who did everything backwards. And the reason for that was because the one thing the Plains Indian feared more than anything else was a lightning storm because their teepee was the highest thing on the plains. So to take their minds off the storm that looked like it was coming, the shaman would begin to do everything backwards and get everybody's attention. So that was a kind of ruse mm. to do that. But the, way I, the way I learned that was I was in the middle of teaching a sixth grade social studies class when the inspector from the state came in my room, the one thing every teacher fears. And at the end of my lesson, he called me over and he said that they had a movie at the state department on this if I'd like to see it. And I could not believe that that just happened. Anyway, that's how I, that's how I found out about it.
Thank you so much. So much wisdom and good stories in this group. Yeah. I just finished watching another series called The Good Omens. I don't know if anyone has seen this. Yeah. But it's about, it has angels and demons. And at some point, and of course, traditionally, angels had no sex. And there, you can't tell Michael is a woman with very short hair. And I was with a dream group this morning. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if all of us just dressed as our most masculine selves? Mm. Um, almost the same idea that you were talking about with men playing women. What's it like for us to just go out and de-gender our identity? And some people do this all the time, but it would be an interesting experiment. It's an experiment. Thank you, Lynn. I think, I mean, again, we, we start to get into what I think is like tricky territory when we're talking gender inevitably, right? Um, but it does feel like an experiment our entire culture has been undergoing for centuries now. And I mean, again, what blows me away by what Jung does in this is as women are trying to figure out throughout culture to claim more of the masculine, the power that has, was denied women traditionally, he is organically understanding that his experience of kind of soullessness and emptiness had to do with his, the lost projection of his soul. So, you know, I think, I don't know, for, for me, and Carol and I spoke about this again at the beginning of it, but I have, as a, as a hetero cis woman, needed to deeply also reclaim my feminine self and, and learn so many different components of this because society did not help me understand very deeply what the feminine is outside of patriarchy because it's not something we know. It's completely unknowable because it shapes everything that we do, right? So for me, it's, again, it's learning my psychological feminine self. It's learning my psychological masculine self. So it's sort of how do we all dress up as 15,000 different people all the time and learn how to walk in those people's shoes and incorporate all of those projections into ourselves? Because even as I think of dressing as a man, there's endless versions of what that would look like. Or dressing as a woman, there's endless versions of what that would look like. So in any case, we open up so much territory. Carol, I thought we might end with one read, one more reading just to close us out with Jung. You want to do it? I was thinking uh, 230 under the, the rant about scholars, that second paragraph there. Therefore, because I rise above gendered masculinity and yet do not exceed the human, the feminine that is contemptible to me transforms itself into a meaningful being. This is the most difficult thing, to be beyond the gendered and yet remain within the human. If you rise above the gendered with the help of a general rule, you become the same as that rule and overreach the human. Therefore, you become dry, hard, and inhuman. You may go past the gendered for human reasons and never for the sake of a general rule that remains the same in the most diverse situations and therefore <clears throat> never has a perfect validity for each single situation. If you act from your humanity, you act from that particular situation without general principle, with only what corresponds to the situation and thus you do justice to the situation. I don't know. I, I, I'll, I think we should stop there, but it reminds me of 
the wonderful scene in Tootsie where he's walking in high heels for the first time and it shows him from the back walking, stumbling on his heels and pulling his underwear down. And, you know, it's just that idea about practice. It's the idea of practice. Yeah. Yeah. Carol, you want to just, again, tee us up for next week of what, what, why we're doing this for two weeks? One of the reasons is that we thought it was important, again, to come back to definitions of the unconscious, the process of projection, to really frame Jung's experience in terms of the wrestle that he's having that is our wrestle. But the question that came up for me as I was reading it was, what was Jung, what was his experience at this time? I, as I inelegantly put it to Satya, who was he stooping? And, and that has led us into a consideration of Jung's life, of his marriage to Emma, of his profound relationship with Tony Wolf, and that you can feel in this that not only is it a profoundly psychic, psychological process that he's coming to, but this is a man who's living in a culture, in a relationship with real women, that is both a product of his of his journey and um, and that are holding him in his journey. So as I began to look at the horoscopes of the three individuals involved, and at the time, at the timing of it, of what was going on in the world and what was going on for them, uh, Satya and I looked at that and said it really needs to be a whole separate discussion. So we'll, that will be part of what we do next week. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team, to Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights, to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast, to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.